just bow our heads in a moment of prayer. Lord, open our hearts this morning to hear your word. Amen. So this story in Daniel is great. Um, It's about the men in the fiery furnace, and that was the title of the talk. But is it really about the men in the fiery furnace? So when I was preparing for this, I thought, well, maybe there's something different about this, rather than just the story of the men in the fiery furnace and surviving the fiery furnace. Is it something about standing up for what you believe? So I'm going to cover a bit of ground this morning, um, as I often do, uh, which will include girl guides, include Charlotte, my daughter who's just turned 18, uh, and it'll include the Care Quality Commission. So there you go, there's a a range of things to be included this morning. But first, uh, let's look at Daniel and the the story at Daniel. Who are these men uh, who stood up essentially for what they believed? These are Shadrach, Misak, and Abednego. You need to go back to chapter 2 to understand this, um, where Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar that his dream about the smashing of the gold-headed statue and its replacement by a mountain symbolizes the temporary nature of Nebuchadnezzar's worldly power and its replacement by the kingdom of God. So in Daniel, at the end of Daniel chapter 2, they say, uh, the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So that's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to the positions that they were in. So what's Nebuchadnezzar's next move in chapter 3? Having had this uh, interpretation of a dream uh, where this golden statue, golden-headed statue was smashed and replaced by a mountain. So um, he builds an image of gold and demands that people worship it. Seems a bit interesting uh, move as the next move that he was going to do. But in the context of Daniel's warning about the temporary nature of worldly power, chapter 3 is more than just a warning about the worship of images or about the worship of idols. It's a a warning about the worship of human effort. Uh, the worship of temporary power. So Daniel's essentially making a mockery in chapter 3 of Nebuchadnezzar, who's trying to get his people to worship something that is so temporary, so transient, so ephemeral. And essentially Nebuchadnezzar is trying to substitute human endeavor for the one true God that Daniel has been talking to him about. We'll catch up back with Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'll just read a little bit of the story again. So at this time, and this is before the, uh, the reading that we had, at this time some Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. This was these three. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs and providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve nor gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. And then on a bit further, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons the three of them. And so these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold? So when you hear the sound of music, you're supposed to fall down and worship the image of the God I made. But if you don't worship it, you'll be thrown into a blazing furnace. 
then what God will be able to rescue you? And the reply from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is interesting. He said, they, they said together, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That, to me, is an enormously robust act of defiance. Imagine, put yourself in the shoes of these probably reasonably young men who've been promoted into new positions in Babylon in positions of tremendous responsibility. People have set against them and said, we're not very happy with these guys being in charge um, of the province of Babylon. Um, They've gone to King Nebuchadnezzar and told them about the fact that they won't fall down in front of this image. But their response is incredibly robust. We do not need to defend ourselves before you. Can you imagine saying that to somebody like King Nebuchadnezzar, who in Jeremiah uh, has a reputation for uh, killing off people he doesn't like? So why did they do it? What is this based on? Why did they stand up to King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, to me, it's relatively simple. They were Jews. They had the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandments from Exodus. So they had these core principles underlying their actions. And not only did they have these core principles, they stuck absolutely firmly to their principles. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's response is entirely predictable in uh, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up the three of them and throw them into the blazing furnace. Why did Nebuchadnezzar send them to the furnace? Was it a fear of him as king as being seen as weak? Did he fear the spread of a revolution of defiance? We've seen a lot of examples over the last four or five years uh, around the Arab Spring of individuals standing up and being defiant and then this creating a huge uh, revolution. But Nebuchadnezzar was very fearful at this time. But of course they survived as we heard in the reading. So they came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. So this is not just Nebuchadnezzar who sees them, it's the whole court. And Nebuchadnezzar is dumbfounded, amazed. What does he do next? And again, his response is interesting. Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except 
their own God. And then he promoted them uh, further in the province of Babylon. So these three men were true to themselves and to their beliefs. And this is where the girl guides come in. There has been some controversy about the new girl guide promise. And the first thing, when I heard it on the radio, I thought, oh my word, what have they done? And there's an immediate reaction being part of the Church of England and having a, a Christian faith to think, why, why has God disappeared out of this? But this is the new girl guide's promise. I promise that I will do my best to be true to myself and develop my beliefs, to serve the queen and my community, and to help other people and to keep the guide law. So as you do, you Google in true to yourself. What does it mean to be true to yourself? And I picked out a couple of things that popped up. They're not necessarily fantastic, but I'll read them out and see what you think. This is what just, just general population think about this. So to be true to yourself means to act in accordance with who you are and what you believe. Secondly, being true to yourself means following what you believe over what people pressure you to do. I quite like that second one, actually. It's just sticking firm. And that's what these three guys demonstrated in spades, I think, and was recognized by King Nebuchadnezzar. So I'm not going to say whether uh, the girl's guide's promise, the new one, is fantastic or not. It's gone out to consultation. But there is something about saying that I will be true to myself and develop my beliefs. There is something very powerful in that because these three were true to themselves, true to their beliefs, true to their Jewish faith, and they developed their beliefs. They had a concrete foundation to their beliefs. So where do we gain the foundation from our beliefs? So the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, contain to me a few simple principles which are embodied in the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, Jesus' teaching, and Paul's teaching, surrounded by lots and lots and lots of illustrations, stories, parables, and examples of people living those principles, historical figures, as with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is a story about three men demonstrating the few simple principles, the foundations of our beliefs. And whether it was written at the time, 500 BC, or whether it was written as a piece of revolutionary writing, 160 BC, to me doesn't actually matter. It's a story about three men who were true to their beliefs. Many of these simple principles, like the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, are contrary to our natural instincts. Our natural instincts would suggest that blessed are the go-getters, for they will inherit the earth and be very rich and very happy. But Jesus turns everything upside down, as does much of the rest of the Bible. It would have been much easier for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to have agreed to bow down and worship the image of gold, fitted in with the mainstream, kept their nice, cushy, provincial uh, manager jobs uh, in Babylon, rather than have been thrown in a furnace. I think the contrast there is fairly big. Keep a nice, cushy job, probably with servants, or get thrown in a furnace. I'll read an extract from Paul, Galatians 1, verse 6, on beliefs and principles. I am, this is typical Paul, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than that one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Is Paul trying to please people or be a servant of Christ? So how do we embed those foundations uh, of those beliefs? My daughter Charlotte just turned 18, prospect of leaving home, parents getting a bit worried, all the sort of usual things, going off and spending more time out than in, more time with friends than us. And I, I talk, talk to colleagues at work, and one of my colleagues at work was great. And she said to me, your job as a parent is to embed a set of values in your children and allow them to live those values. Just let them go. And there is something about embedding values. So how do you embed values? I'm not an expert on this, but the degree to which it's taught at, ch- at home, in school, in junior church, and it's something about us being an example to our children, living those values as examples, as exemplars to our children. But how do these beliefs, how do these core principles or values surface in day-to-day life? Today we are unlikely to be asked to bow down and worship a golden image. But we may be asked to compromise our core beliefs and our values. And there's some pretty spectacular examples of this in the press recently. So I promised I'd mention the Care Quality Commission. As you know, I work uh, for the NHS. But the Care Quality Commission, the senior management team at the Care Quality Commission are accused of hiding a highly critical report and pressuring each other into suppressing this report. They're accused of doing it. I make a judgment on that uh, when uh, further investigation is carried out. But that's against your core principles. In cycling, another cyclist, Jan Ulrich, if you're familiar with cycling, he won the Tour de France, I think, in 97. He goes alongside Lance Armstrong and a whole bunch of others who've now admitted that they took performance-enhancing drugs. But not just did that, but lied for years and years and years against any half-decent core principles or values. Driving now to church this morning, just a little piece on banking, about personal protection insurance. The people working in the banking industry, lying and misleading people and selling them insurance they didn't need. So this is day-to-day life. But an example closer to home. I work in a big hospital. It's very easy, I can tell you, to accept poor care. Mid-staffs, is the absolutely classic example of this, but it goes on and still goes on elsewhere. Should we, working in that sector, me working in that sector, accept poor care? Or should I stand up and say, hang on, my core values, my principles are different? What about keeping some cash off the books to avoid tax? Or even offering to pay cash to somebody who's doing some work for you in the hope of getting a discount? What about accepting backhanders or lavish hospitality from a client to influence a decision? Or if you're working 
But the council may be producing a, a favourable report to avoid embarrassment of your senior colleagues or any recriminations on your job. Now, they're just examples I've plucked out of thin air. I'm sure within your home, work, social or other lives, you'll be able to think of examples of yourself where it's very easy to drift away from your core values. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning that his kingdom and others and all others after would fall. They were temporary. They were transient. Whereas the kingdom of God is eternal. And I've talked on this not for a little while, but the kingdom of God is something about the rule of God in our lives, our sticking to those core principles. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stuck to their beliefs. They stuck to God's rule in their lives. There's something about honesty and transparency in our personal life and sticking to our principles, our core, volu- core values. Is this not what, to me, religion, Christianity, is all about? Is this not the very foundation of our religion, of our Christianity, of our belief system? Should we close with a, a word of prayer from Romans? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen.